daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, China and Vietnam agree to build a community with a shared future. China's key economic meeting vows to step up policy adjustments to spur economic growth and recovery in 2024. UN General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly in favor of a Gaza ceasefire, and the new Argentinian government has announced some plans to cut spending and dramatically devalue the currency to turn around the economy. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes. You can download our podcast by searching "World Today." China and Vietnam have agreed to build a China-Vietnam community with a shared future during a state visit to the country by Chinese President Xi Jinping. A joint statement says the two sides agreed to deepen cooperation in defense, security, the economy, green development, and cultural exchanges. The two countries will also improve high-level diplomacy between their respective militaries. Xi Jinping on Wednesday held separate meetings with the country's president, prime minister, and national assembly chairman. On Tuesday, he held talks with Mr. Nguyen Phu Trung, general secretary of the Communist Party of Vietnam Central Committee. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Thank you very much for joining us. So, why do you think、um, China and Vietnam agreed to build a a a, a China-Vietnam community with a shared future? Actually, with regard to how to build this community. Uh, Xi Jinping has raised a few points regarding、uh, enhancing political mutual trust, enhancing their、uh, economic cooperation, strengthening people-to-people exchanges, and a closer coordination on international affairs. Do you think these things are what a community with a shared future between these two countries what entail? Yeah, in my understanding, it's a very important relation between our two countries. Since China and Vietnam, we are so long time of neighbors, and we have so many similarities on the you know the culture, the history, the economies, and also many of the other ties. So when President Xi mentioned about the social responsibility, our security, or economic relations, I had to believe that these are the really the concerns of both countries. Since our two countries are really, you know, worrying about what we can do to help our people to have a better life, so our mutual understanding is how can we give more support to the market and trying to make the people have a better life by the connections and the cooperation. So I think that the shared shared future is a kind of a common understanding that we we should trying to help those people. To have a better life by better employment, while with the cooperation between our two countries.、Mm. So, by the way, what do you think a China-Vietnam community with a shared future might mean? Might generate some、um, implications or ramifications、uh, when we talk about, say, regional peace or regional development、uh, here in Asia or in the Asia Pacific. Yeah, we know that China is、uh, one of the, the the biggest economies in the world. While Vietnam is also one of the most important economies in the ASEAN area. So for both countries, we have to deal with the situation about the cooperation, and even in some regard, I would say there were definitely some of the competition. So how can we try to cooperate instead of just just do some harm things for the other side? Is very important for the balance in this region. We know that ASEAN countries are facing so many challenges. They have the intention to have a better integration after many decades. Well, in the recent decades, I think it's one of the very successful stories that China and ASEAN countries are making the integration better by the cooperation for the mechanism, including the free trade agreements or other mechanisms. So、uh, I think that China and Vietnam will have a border of more than one thousand kilometers. Kilometers, and we have、uh, such such a dynamic 
uh, cooperation in the trade and investment, we have seen a very good example that both of the big economies can cooperate instead of just trying to take mm-hmm. the advantage of the others. So I, I would say that uh, there are so many different ways for the cooperation in this region. Well, the bilateral cooperation between us could make send out very good examples for the cooperation in this region. Hmm. So judging from the, you know, the the comments or official statements from Vietnamese officials, uh, including those that have uh, met with President Xi Jinping during his state visit this time around, it looks that uh, Vietnam very much appreciates those those, you know, spirits, let's put it in this way, the the, the kind of uh, spirits behind President Xi Jinping's three, you know, signature global initiatives regarding development, security, and a civilization. Why do you think this is the case? Uh, Vietnam now says it is ready and happy to get involved in all of uh, these uh, three initiatives. What do you think Vietnam is able to contribute, realistically speaking? Yeah, I think these are real important demand of the people itself. So when we're talking about that, the initiative, why they accepted that? Because they also believe that for the development, for the security or the other kind of cooperation are the real demand of the people of the Vietnam. So actually, we see that Vietnams are under many of the pressures or even challenges in the past decades or even one century. So it's just trying to rebuild its country by ending uh, its division by the two uh, different uh, economies or governments. So it has to deal with the situation of the differences from the north to the south. And when it's trying to deal with the situation, it's, uh, it's also facing many challenges from the globalization. So I, I would say that uh, Vietnam is uh, increasing very quickly. And especially in the recent years, we see the trade, the investment are increasing very quickly. I think one of the advantages is that it has accumulated many of the experiences of the international organizations, including the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. So it's trying to involve the opening up policies together with, uh, you know, kind of a reform of itself. I would say that it is a very important experience and we can learn from them also because for the developing economies, we have to deal with the different situation. In some mm-hmm. parts, maybe we can do something by ourselves. But in other side, I would say that uh, to learn from the, the most important experiences is one of the paths. So in this way, I would say that the, you know, the three initiatives, they are, uh, they are just for all the people, not only for China. I would say that uh, cooperation between us and also their experiences of Vietnamese is very contributable to these uh, initiatives. Mm, I guess they shared a there is a shared worldview about international affairs. So when we talk about say the disputes on the South China Sea, uh, President Xi Jinping has called for managing differences and disputes. And on the part of, say, General Secretary uh, Yuan Fuzhong, he has also said during his uh, meeting with President Xi that dispute is only one aspect of the bilateral ties between Vietnam and China. So how do you think uh, the, the two countries, Vietnam and China, can somehow work together to turn those maritime disputes into a kind of opportunity for cooperation. Yeah, we know that uh, both countries are marine countries that we have so many areas in the oceans. And I think that it's, uh, it's, it's okay for me to understand that there may be some disagreement or these different opinions on certain areas, but there are still quite a lot of areas that we can try to explore, like how can we protect the, the, the biodiversity of the oceans and how can we make better use of the resources and how can we try to facilitate the transportation through the oceans and make it much more resilient to the weather, to different kind of the natural mm. disasters. And how can we deal with a better, you know, to cooperate from the coastal area and the inner inner land areas. So actually, there are so many things that we can deal with, like, you know, many Chinese companies are helping the Vietnam to build their, their, their own ocean, the wind 
uh, wind uh, power station. I think mm. it's uh, one of the very successful stories that they have helped Vietnam to transfer from the traditional energy into the renewable one. So actually, there are so many open areas that we can cooperate, and I would I would believe that uh, there are still many things that we can benefit by the cooperation instead of just a competition or in or conflicts. Hmm. I guess uh, this uh, particular example you have cited regarding Chinese building, Chinese helping the Vietnamese building wind turbine, wind power station is exactly why this joint statement this time around says that the two sides agree to deepen cooperation in green economy and green development. So actually, during his visits this time. Uh, Xi Jinping has earmarked one particular meeting with Vietnamese young people. So, Dr. Zhou, you have personally, you know, extensively traveled in Southeast Asian countries. You have done some field research. You have your own observation. Are you optimistic that the two countries' younger generation can inject new dynamics and momentum into the bilateral ties? Yeah, definitely. I believe that the young people are very important for the future. Actually, I think that they are very energetic in using the new technology, including the digital economy, some of the, you know, the the mobile internet. They they are very good at that. So I think that they are really important factors to accept the new concept and trying to cooperate in a better way. But I have to say that we should have a very nice and friendly environment to. Help those young people to understand the history、uh, with a better attitude, and how can we deal with、uh, challenges instead of just、uh, looking at some very,、uh, very negative things. So actually, for the young people of both sides, I think that there are so many communications, like I, you mentioned about the investigation. I saw there are so many young people are, are working in the factories of the. Vietnam factories. I, I think that、uh, they are really helpful for improve the competitiveness of the export of Vietnam's.、Uh, and、mm. you know, in the past、uh, several years, the、uh, cross-border cooperation between China and Vietnam's increased very quickly in in the electronics, in some other area and sectors. So I, I think that these young people can bring more ideas,、uh, not only just follow what we are doing, but trying to use a more innovative way and、uh, environment. And friendly way to deal with the situation and help、uh, to、uh, accumulate more experiences for other countries to follow.、Mm-hmm. So this is definitely what I I hope it will be. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Zhou Mi from joining us from the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the World Today. In my opinion, the World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In the World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. China held its annual economic Central Economic Work Conference on Monday and Tuesday as Chinese leaders decided on a priority for next year's economic work. The conference acknowledged China's economic recovery in 2023, emphasizing high-quality development progress. Despite some challenges, the meeting has affirmed a positive long-term outlook for China's recovery, calling for stronger confidence. So, for more, my colleague Zhao Yang had a talk with Professor Yao Shujie with Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, what are your main takeaways from this year's Central Economic Work Conference? What kind of message does it send? The Central Economic Work Conference is a very important、uh, conference for the end of the year because it's planned for the、uh, economy development for the next next year, 2024. Which has been indicated as the very important year,、uh, not only the the final years of the 14th five-year plan, but also it is、uh, the, the second year of the full recovery of the COVID-19、uh, pandemic、uh, for China to sustain economic growth.、Uh, although in the short term, it also highlighted there are quite a lots of challenges. 
uh, both in the domestic uh, market as well as the external environment. But it also emphasized China has quite a lot of uh, strong point and competitive advantage to sustain economic growth for the next year. So mm-hmm. it, sent out, it basically sent out two messages. The first message is the determination of the central government for economic stability and uh, progress. The second uh, signal is to uh, give the message to the outside world uh, to boost the confidence in the Chinese economy, not only for the domestic market holders, as well as the, uh, you know, the external investors into China. The meeting noted that China's economy has achieved a recovery with solid progress made in high-quality development this year. So what are the biggest factors that contribute to China's economic recovery in the year 2023? The year 2023, we can see quite a lot of difficulty uh, with the Chinese uh, government, both at the central and the regional level, have tried to uh, overcome those difficulties. And the, the major achievement uh, is fairly obvious. I think the economic growth rate has been very steady. The first three quarters of the year is 5.2 on average. And we can see that the final quarter will be even stronger. So this is why uh, the Chinese the uh, economic growth is so steady and, and dynamic. Mm. The, the, the achievement has been achieved in all aspects agriculture, manufacturing, investment, and uh, external trade, and also uh, bilateral uh, investment float in and out of China. China. So Mm -hmm. in all aspects, Chinese economy is is doing uh, pretty well, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic. You can see it has a full steam discovery, you know, recovery in every aspect of the economy. Mm. And given the internal and external environment, all the difficulties and challenges, the meeting said that overall favorable conditions outweigh unfavorable factors in China's development. So what do you see as the favorable factors that will continue to support China as a major contributor to the global economy? The most important favorable factors can include different aspects. Uh, China has formed, number one, China has formed a, a fairly large domestic market, which itself can be uh, promoted to enhance development in different uh, regions of the country, different industries of, of the country. So the, the resilience of the domestic economy is very strong. The second factor is China still have a lot of growth potential in terms of uh, industrial transformation from the medium low level to the medium and higher level uh, in terms of manufacturing and and in terms of the international competitiveness. The third factor is that uh, Chinese policy has been fairly fairly clear and fairly stable. The domestic uh, macroeconomy recovery is fairly uh, steady and strong. And also at the micro level, uh, enterprises are trying every uh, effort to make sure they recover as well. At this particular moment, I'm, I'm actually visiting a city called Xinchen City, uh, and I'm I'm visiting the uh, the, the factories, which is a uh, lots of factory cluster into an area producing the swimming shoot, which is uh, accounting for about 25 percent of the global uh, product in one single city. Uh, you, you can see that the end entrepreneurs, the people here, they are full of confidence that they want to uh, make, uh, you know, steady progress. The mm. final factors, uh, or not, not the least, we can see that technological and innovation is now the major driving force for China's economic growth. China has paid a lot of attention to uh, technological and scientific innovation, particularly in the digital economy sector. So the, the structure of the Chinese economy is getting better on the day. And this is why China has uh, you know, more and more potential to maintain the economic dynamics, uh, mm. not only now, but also in the future. 
And based on the signal sent from the recent CPC Central Committee Political Bureau meeting and now the Central Economic Work Conference, how do you think China's policymakers will prioritize economic work for the next year?、Uh, the priority has been highlighted in the in, in the speech.、Uh, first of all, it is the progress with、uh, steady,、uh, you know, steady economic growth. So making progress with steady economic growth is the is the main. Uh, you know the main signal sent by the conference meeting, but it also sent out some signal that progress is the precondition for steady growth. And、uh, you know, country cyclical policy and also cross cyclical、uh, policy can be brought forward to stabilize the market, to stimulate the the the, the economy activity in the country. So not only the kinds of Not only the vision that China is is very clear, but also how to implement this policy. There are some very new ideas in the conference. Mm. And as we know, the key factors such as the self-reliance in science and technology, expanding domestic demand, and deepening supply-side structural reform were also highlighted during the meeting. So, can you elaborate more on those fronts? Why are they emphasized? Well, the supply-side reform. It means that the the supply side have to meet the demand side, so that the demand can be created.、Uh, it is automatic. It's automatic because of the con- consumer behavior. On the supply side, it actually could be intervened by effective policy,、uh, you know, direction and also implementation. So it it is the bottom up approach and also the top down approach mixing together. Uh, to guide the policy action. So, on expanding the domestic demand, the meeting said that work should be done to increase the domestic demand and create an environment where consumption and investment promote each other. So, how do you interpret that goal? Yeah, you know, consumption is the not the major driving force for economic growth, but consumption without effective investment,、uh, it will not have a, a prolonging effect on the economy recovery. And sustainability. So,、uh, investment and consumption they are intertwined in the sense that effective consumption could also drive a further round of investment, and investment would create production capacity and employment to further drive consumption. Now, currently, consumption for the Chinese consumers,、uh, people are upgrading their consumption basket. Not only just food and also other necessity, but now people are considering of,、uh, you know, improving their likelihood of, let's say, buying a, a, a new vehicle, cars,、uh, electric cars, and also、uh, a, in a electronic product in their households, and also improve their living environment. So these are the main expenditure items in, in the future.、Uh, this consumption,、uh, you know, led economy. Uh, you know, growth will be very important, but、mm. this kinds of consumption activity could also lead to effective investment, profitable investment by the、uh, enterprises, and this is the kinds of policy that got to、uh, you know not only targeted one particular aspect of the economy, but it have a combined effect of benefiting both consumption and investment. Hmm. And the meeting said to further promote economic recovery, we need to overcome some difficulties and challenges. So, what are the main challenges, and how does China plan to address those issues? The main challenges, I mean, of course, is the investment. So,、uh, and investment and also、uh, employment. I mean, we have to create sufficient employment so that、uh, you know the university graduate can get. Can can have suitable jobs and people can have more income、uh, to improve their livelihood. The second,、uh, uh, you know, challenge is the, is the investment of the private sector, particularly the micro and medium-sized enterprises. They are they are facing more risk and uncertainty. Dr. Yao Shujian, Chongqing Professor of Economics with Chongqing University, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. More to come. UN General Assembly votes overwhelmingly in favor of a Gaza ceasefire. You're listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break.
Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. The United Nations General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly in favor of a resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. 153 countries voted in favor, and 10 countries voted against, including the United States and Israel. 23 countries have abstained. This vote came on the heels of a failed resolution in the UN Security Council last Friday, which also called for a ceasefire. Israel's month-long assault on the Gaza Strip has so far killed more than 18,000 Palestinians, with a majority of them being women and children. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counterhegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Thank you very much for joining us. So, what do you think this latest UN General Assembly resolution is telling us about the global opinion about the Gaza crisis? And by the way, how do you think this resolution is different from an earlier version in late October sponsored by Arab countries? Well, first of all, it's a small but significant break from the U.S. line. So it's significant in the sense that. A lot of states who are themselves aligned with the U.S.、Um, are taking a different position. The U.S. has never supported any form of ceasefire so far. The one in the General Assembly, the recent one, of course, is not doesn't have the the weight that the one、uh, the one which failed in the Security Council would have had it passed. And the one in the Security Assembly, Security Council, also was for a a permanent ceasefire, whereas this current one. Uh, talks about pauses, so really it's just a repetition of an earlier motion and an earlier event when there was a prisoner exchange of、uh, a pause in the bombing, not to stop the bombing of of Gaza.、Mm. On one hand, of course,、uh, this latest resolution by the General Assembly of the UN could serve as a sort of indicator of global opinion on this issue, but yeah, I mean, on the other hand, some people are really. Questioning what's the actual or what's the realistic meaning of this resolution? Because I guess、um, unlike the resolution by the UN Security Council, a resolution by the General Assembly is non-binding, right? That's right.、Um, and so the General Assembly resolution, even in relation to to the the limited aims of it, of of a, a pause on the bombing,、um, is not really. Binding, but it does indicate, as you say,、uh, a trend in global opinion against the the operation that's going on, the slaughter that's going on in Gaza, and that's important for one one important reason. That is that really the ongoing bombing is driven by the U.S. All of the bombs being dropped are North American bombs, and if the U.S. support for Israel stopped, the operation would stop there too. So I think, in a, in a sense, the、um, <clears throat> Pardon me. Undermining the political will to support this ongoing operation has become very important because it's not really just the military, the U.S., the Israeli military that's doing this. It's the it's the international supporters of the Israelis that that keep it going on.、Hmm. So the United States has vetoed in both this latest Security Council resolution and this latest General Assembly resolution. And I guess,、um, to a large extent, it is precisely the United States' veto that have doomed the passage of this Security Council resolution.、Uh, so, but on the other hand,、um, Dr. Tim Anderson,、um, you know better than I do, because、uh, on the other hand, we have also seen U.S. President Joe Biden warn Israel on Tuesday that Israel. Was losing international support due to its indiscriminate bombing in Gaza, quote unquote. So, what do you read from these latest de- developments or statements regarding the actual stance by by the United States? I think we can read from that that the rift between the Netanyahu administration and the Biden administration is coming out into the open. It was well known before the current crisis that. Uh, Biden didn't like Netanyahu and prefer someone else there, and now he's saying openly, or his administration is saying openly, that they want to see a revised Israel. In a sense, they want a new Israel. I think they are looking for some sort of change, some sort of scapegoat for、um, 
for what's happened. Of course, remember, even the Israeli population is very much against Netanyahu these days, and they blame him for the security breaches of October. Hmm. Now, some people say the U.S. is the only entity that is capable of persuading Israel to accept a ceasefire. What is your take on this? I don't think it's simply a question of the U.S. persuading Israel because the U.S. is orchestrating this. They are very involved. They're in the command room. We know that they're in the command room. They have troops on the ground. They have some、uh, private militia or mercenaries on the ground in Gaza too. If the U.S. switched off the tap of the weapons to the Israelis, it would end. So, in a sense, it's、um, the the international debate is about、uh, trying to、uh, persuade the U.S. that it's not in its interest to go on. With this slaughter, but of course the the reputation of the U.S. is in a nosedive now, and so its influence and its its often claimed、uh, role as a leader of of in the international community is is at risk seriously, and I think they're very well aware of that.、Hmm. So, do you think, in your observation, do you think the the United States have any tiny tiny real intention to try to persuade Israel to accept a ceasefire? I think they've been responsible for what's gone on most、mm. of the time in the last two months, and and really、uh, the the campaign really is and should be aimed at the U.S. because they are responsible and and shooting home the responsibility to、um, the organ grinders, if you like, not the monkeys, is is very important. In other words, the masterminds, the people who are behind this terrible slaughter,、um, you can shoot it home to the to Washington and. And I think that's what the international community has been doing, and you, we can see the results of that. In a sense, there's a, there's a reluctance, there's a defensiveness.、Um, some of the allies of the U.S. are also becoming increasingly defensive, wanting to distance themselves from this because the impact on global opinion has been massive. Absolutely, there's been nothing like it in in living memory, really. Hmm. Thank you very much, Dr. Tim Anderson, for joining us. That was Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counterhegemonic Studies, a think tank based in Sydney. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. U.S. President Joe Biden has pledged that the United States will continue to support Ukraine as long as it can. Biden made this comment in a joint press conference with visiting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Biden signed off on additional 200 million U.S. dollars in security assistance for Ukraine during Zelensky's visit. However, U.S. Republican congressional leaders are nowadays dashing Biden's hope for a quick deal on a security spending package, which would include somewhere around 60 billion U.S. dollars in aid for Ukraine. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Alexei Muraviev, associate professor of national security and strategy with Curtin University in Australia. Welcome back. Great to be with you. So we understand. Actually, in the past,、uh, President Joe Biden had actually pledged that、uh, U.S. will back Kiev for "quote unquote" as long as it would take.、Uh, by making some、uh, some comparison, some people say Biden's language this time around was much more sober. What is your observation? Well, I, I think <clears throat> I think there are grounds to. Uh, to make such observations and such assumptions, certainly there's been a, a departure from the way how Biden used to refer to、uh, the United States' stand on supporting Ukraine for as long as it, it is required, and now he's um, uh, making a more pragmatic sort of down-to-earth commentary、uh, stating, as, as you, as your report、uh, already outlined, for as long as the United States would be able to.、Um, If it's a figure of speech, it certainly doesn't work in favor of Ukraine or President Volodymyr Zelensky, who visited Washington only back in 
September and his mm. second tour of uh, of uh, South and North America, to me, it sounds more like a desperate attempt to uh, secure some uh, uh, political as well as financial support because Ukraine finds itself now in a situation when um, it's ambiguous whether the United States would be able to commit uh, resources before the end of the year. And same goes for the European Union because the EU... Um, uh, uh, plan to support Ukraine with 50 billion euros uh, also hit the roadblock when um, a number of European nations, obviously led by Hungary, mm. um, uh, blocked the resolution. So I think um, uh, Zelensky finds himself in a bit of a uh, stalemate situation. I cannot, I cannot think that he would describe his visit to the United States mm. as, a, as a success, also because he didn't seem to impress uh, uh, members of, of the U.S. Congress, who uh, some of whom came out of the briefing with him um, being very skeptical about what they heard from the uh, uh, president of Ukraine. Mm. So, by the way, uh, do you think uh, the, the U.S. Republicans have a point when they somehow question any necessity regarding any additional aid for Ukraine, or when they condition any new assistance uh, financially for Ukraine on harsher immigration curbs at the southern U.S. border? Well, we need to understand that the United States in the midst of the election campaign. Mm. And, uh, and, and when it comes to elections, uh, as far as my limited knowledge of the U.S. Uh, domestic politics is concerned, um, uh, the, the, the priority for the U.S. electorate is things that are happening at home, not abroad. So, obviously, the issue of cross-border migration, especially illegal migration from the U.S. southern border, is something that the Republicans have been pursuing over, over many years. And, 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 and uh, they're they certainly making it as one of the um, uh, attack uh, factors that they use against uh, the Biden administration. Hence, we see this, um, uh, this uh, uh, ongoing political gaming when... Biden is trying to group it all together, the support for the Ukraine, the support for Israel, yeah. and the question of border security, uh, while the Republicans and now some Democrats are effectively saying, well, stating that, you know, we should start separating these matters and not throw it into all, all one thing. Mm. Uh, and, and, and the sheer size of what has been considered to, to, to support Ukraine for next year, the amount of $60 billion, it's not something that will certainly go down well with U.S. tax base. And we need to remember that there was a lot of backlash about, uh, say, Biden's reaction to uh, devastating uh, volcano eruption in Hawaii earlier in the year and how much uh, uh, local residents received in terms, of form, in, in terms of compensation compared to what he continued to deliver uh, to the fight in Ukraine. Hmm. So earlier you have already uh, elaborated a little bit regarding the situation on the EU side. I guess basically currently over there, there is a deep division similar to the one we, we, we have seen in, in the U.S. case, a deep division regarding a shared budget of the European Union and Hungary is vowing to block a bid to provide a, a critical financial lifeline to Ukraine. Nowadays, um. I have read about uh, uh, media reports suggesting that EU diplomats are currently discussing some kind of uh, technical proposals to try to raise some kind of emergency funding for Ukraine that is outside of the shared budget of the European Union. Do you think such a channel is going to work? Look, uh, despite all the hurdles, I, uh, it is my firm belief that both Europe and the United States will come up with some funds for the Ukraine, one way or another. Um, in, in, in case of the United States, it may be a last-minute uh, emergency release. Uh, it may not be as lavish as what uh, Biden administration wants. Otherwise, um, uh, the, the, the Republicans will start looking like they're backing down to the pressure coming from the White House. Uh, but uh, Ukraine will not be left without any any funding because it is quite clear that Ukraine is now entirely dependent on Western economic, political, and military aid, without which Ukraine may have 
may may still be able to fight for some time, but won't be able to survive as a as a sovereign nation. Already next year's uh, uh, budget in Ukraine uh, has been approved by the Ukrainian authorities with a projected deficit of uh, just over 40 billion U.S. dollars. And how Ukraine is planning to compensate it? On, on, on the expectation that it would receive this money from Western financial institutions. If this money will not come through, Ukraine and Ukrainian state machine may simply collapse because they won't be able to fund uh, um, programs, not just with regards to security and defense, but social welfare programs. They won't be able to uh, pay pensions uh, or, or do uh, other activities. And I think it's really well understood in, in, in the West. I think many in the West are unhappy that Ukraine uh, is now become uh, has become almost like a financial liability with no tangible outcomes. Um, uh, but at the same time, there is also a realization that if Ukraine will be abandoned now by the West, mm. it would be regarded as, as not just Ukraine's defeat, but as a strategic defeat for the United States and for Europe and something you cannot afford during the election cycle. Hmm. So we still have about two minutes before we need to finish this particular dialogue with you, Professor Muraviev. So if um, if this uh, kind of a difficulty or hurdle in terms of Ukraine's access to U.S. or EU financial aid uh, is uh, is true, is real, how do you think such a scenario might prompt Ukraine to reposition or reevaluate its stance regarding this war? Look, I mean, it very much depends who will end up in, 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 the, in the driver's seat in Kyiv. There is growing political in a, a, a internal struggle in, in Ukraine. I don't think Zelensky uh, is prepared to negotiate, uh, and I, I don't think uh, he may actually be willing to negotiate, even if he would be pressured directly by the West, also because um, he managed to to make it part of of Ukraine's legislation. But anyone other than Zelensky, yes, there may be a chance for them to to start negotiations before things may may become dramatically unfavorable for, for the Ukrainians. So it would very much depend on the political situation in Kyiv. Thank you very much for joining us. As always, that was Dr. Alexei Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies with Curtin University in Australia. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up-to-date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. Argentina's new government has announced a series of new plans to devalue the currency, the peso, by about half, slash public spending, and reduce energy and transportation subsidies. Economy Minister Luis Caputo gave a summary of these measures in a televised message on Tuesday. The broadcast represented the first major announcement by Javier Milei's government since the president took office on Sunday. President Malai has promised to take a chainsaw to the Argentinian state as part of a radical shock therapy. So joining us now on the line is Professor Chu Chiang, Research Fellow of Global Issues with Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, first of all, Professor Chi, we understand the new government is going to move the currency, the peso's official exchange rate to 800 to the U.S. dollar from the levels just below 400 to the U.S. dollar last week. What do you think is the rationale behind this particular plan, and do you think it is going to work? Well, I think, well, uh, to some extent, it will actually work. Uh, the reason why is that uh, actually in Argentina, they have uh, implemented this official exchange rate from the pesos to the dollars as the 400. But mm. uh, according to the exchange rate in the real 
actual exchange market. It's a flat market in Argentina. I think the uh, current exchange rate to U.S. dollar is probably around 1,000 pesos to the U.S. dollar. So I think uh, the official exchange just converted to 800 pesos to a dollar. I think it's just trying to get closer to the real situation in the market. And by doing that, I think immediately you're going to see uh, people saving uh, in Argentina, um, according to the U.S. dollars exchange rate, immediately will shrink by half. And also the assets price, well, to the foreigners, uh, to the foreign investors' eyes, would be cheaper uh, by 50%. Mm. Or if you already have the foreign investment in Argentina already, probably you probably, uh, for example, you've got a house in Argentina uh, and you're from other country, and immediately you devaluated your assets by 50%. Mm. It's going to be a very bad news. But if you are just holding your money on the bank, um, you know, outside of Argentina, you want to buy a new house in Argentina, probably immediately you will get a 50% off. It's going to be a good news. So I think... Well, this is going to be a move attracting and luring more of the foreign investment into Argentina, but also at the cost of local residents saving. Okay, so there is a trade-off. So in the meantime, uh, the transfers of the Argentinian federal budget to the provinces will be cut to a minimum level, and all those new public works projects will be halted. Uh, the budget for one of uh, one of the country's largest welfare programs will be frozen at the 2023 levels, and somehow to offset the the you know to offset the negative impact of these cuts on the people living in absolute poverty, the value of the government provided food cards will rise by 50 percent, and the child benefits will double. The International Monetary Fund has actually. You know, welcome to this particular package, saying that these particular actions would aim to improve public finances in a way that would protect the most vulnerable people in society. But what is your take? Well, I think actually they're also making a correct move. Well, crazy、uh, when you see it, but actually they have some rationale inside of it. I think this is very typical fiscal austerity. A、uh, similar situation happened with China、uh, back before、uh, back before the 1980s, and also happened with uh, uh, Greece back、uh, in the year of 2015.、Mm. The reason why a country needs、uh, you know public fiscal austerity is because the public fiscal budget has been supporting too much of the things and with too many of the people. For Argentina's situation, they have a very huge burden of the public welfare package. Which means no matter what you do, no matter you do not do anything, and then you still get you know certain kind of the social welfare to support your life, which is the good news in the beginning. But when the extent and the depths of this package get bigger and bigger and more and more, and then the hole on the budget of the public government has become bigger and bigger. I still remember before our reform and opening up in China, the government of China. Well, you know we have a metaphor called iron bowl. Which means no matter where do you work and what do you do and how many hours do you work, what contribution you make, you get the same kind of salary and you know you enjoy all kinds of the services for free. Similar situation happened with、uh, with Greek people as well back before、uh, the Euro debt crisis.、Mm-hmm. And both country you know reformed that kind of situation. The incentive people just to go to the market to work for their own. If you work more, you get more. If you don't work, you just get a bottom line. You know,、uh, help a package.、Mm. I think Argentina is just trying to re- return to that kind of a normal situation. You know, to improve,、uh, you know, the fiscal policy and also to encourage more people to go to the market for work. But meanwhile, provide the minimum package and a relief for the emerging group, for the vulnerable people, children, you know, elderly, and etc. Actually, they're trying to do the right thing. But I assume they will have a huge pressure. From the voters,、hmm. so there will also be a temporary rise in taxes on imports. But the government has promised to scrap the existing system regarding government permits for imports. And in the meantime, export taxes will be removed once the current economic emergency is over.、Uh, is this going to work in terms of helping boost Argentina's foreign trade? Well, I think the first part wouldn't help to boost Argentina's foreign trade, but after they sorted out everything, 
and eventually remove all the ban and taxes on the import and export, I think that will definitely, you know, boost Argentina's, you know, foreign trade. But of course, here's another thing, because the customs taxation is always one of the most important tax income for any given country, for America, for European Union, for ASEAN nations, for China, for Japan and South Korea alike. You know, every country will depend on the customs tax. But if you give up on that, you will probably bet on another income, which is more of the products will come into the country and more of the raw, raw material is going to be sold out of your country and more of the investors that come into your country and create more of the companies and hence the companies will create more of the jobs and taxations for your country. But if this logic cannot be completed, for example, if the foreign companies do not come to Argentina to create more of the companies to use your free tax uh, condition in the foreign trade to make your country as a springboard and for the foreign trade into other countries. If they do not do that, and your pre-assumption will fall into empty, and then the whole tax income for the government will be lost. Hmm. So it's kind of a very bold you know, bet. Okay, so we still have about one minute for this discussion. So briefly, actually, during his election campaign, President Malai promised to close the country's central bank and scrap the local currency parcel for the U.S. dollar. Why do you think he has somehow dramatically moderated his position or stance since his election victory? Well, I think this is more like an election tactic just to draw attention, draw people's eyeballs. This is very crazy because you you can just dollarize your currency or pack more more currently you can pack your value of your currency to the U.S. dollar. For example, like Hong Kong region, like Singapore, uh, like Zimbabwe, you can also do that in a moderate way, safer way, stable way to give you more of the leeway in your own monetary policy instead of purely dollarize your own currency or just use U.S. dollar instead. So I think Malay is acting crazy, but eventually he will do it in the moderate way. Mm. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us. That was Professor Chi Chiang, Research Fellow for Global Issues with Beijing Foreign Studies University. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for more, you can follow us on X at CGTM Radio. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.